Good morning. It is a treat for me to be on this side of the room uh, for a few weeks. Uh, I do want to share some updates with you. Uh, my name is Wayne Smith. That's not an update. <laughs> uh, I'm the head of school at Masters Academy, and we're a ministry of this church, and we meet right on this campus. So if you know families who are wanting their children to have a Christian education, um, invite them to check us out, to come see me, give me a call, email, uh, go to our website, and we work hard to make uh, our school's education possible and affordable to everyone who wants it. Um, we just graduated our 10th graduating class. We just finished our 21st year at Masters Academy, and we're thankful for that. Thank you for your prayers. Um, we are in having some budget challenges for next year, so we do pray that you would um, ask that you would pray and ask for the Lord to guide us um, to, uh, to be able to navigate through, through that for His glory. Um, but we've had a good year, and we're thankful to the Lord for that. Uh, several of you have asked about my dad. Um, he's watching. Hi, Norman. Um, and he, since I last spoke to you, he was diagnosed with uh, cancer, lymphoma. Uh, he's in stage two. And doctors are very optimistic that it's treatable. My dad has a great attitude. Um, he's already had his first treatment, and he will have several in the months to come. So I encourage you to continue to pray for him. But we're optimistic, um, and God is good. Amen? All right, we are back in the book of Acts, and we will be back in the book of Acts this week and for the next two weeks. Um, so if you have your Bibles with you, I know we project the scriptures on the uh, screen, but if you have your Bibles, flip to Acts chapter 8, um, put a bookmark there, and then turn to 1 Timothy chapter 1. We're going to read first from 1 Timothy chapter 1. Paul the Apostle is writing to the young pastor Timothy. Timothy was um, a young pastor that Paul was mentoring and guiding. And Paul wrote him a couple of letters, and we're uh, thankful that some of those are still uh, in existence and survived. And we have one of them that we're going to read from this morning. Acts, I mean, 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 12. I, that's Paul, thank Christ Jesus our Lord who has given me strength, that he considered me trustworthy, appointing me to his service, even though, take note of those words, even though I was once a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent man. How is it that someone who was a blasphemer, a persecutor, and a violent man could be considered trustworthy to be appointed to God's service. What would have to take place for an extreme religious fanatic, one who hated Christians, who persecuted Christians, who wanted to see Christians eradicated off the face of the earth? What would have to take place for his life to be turned around, for him to become one of the best defenders of the movement that he once despised? How can someone who profited for years in the forceful and brutal trafficking of thousands and thousands of human beings experience such a change of heart 
that he would write a song that has arguably become one of Christianity's most loved? How is it that those who were once wretches, abominations, sinners, blasphemers, persecutors, and violent individuals who fell so dismally short of the glory of God can change their lives and live hopeful, blessed, productive, and purpose-filled. How does that happen? How is it that someone who was once a foul-mouthed, nasty little brat could stand before you yet today and teach God's Word? How is that? How does that happen? What made the difference? What opened their eyes? One word. What is it? Grace. Grace. Paul, the blasphemer, the persecutor, the, the violent man, tells us, 1 Timothy 1, verse 14, the grace of our Lord was poured out on me abundantly. The slave trader John Newton tells us, amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. Have you ever seen images of what slavery looked like? Pictures, movies, read stories, the brutality of humans capturing humans and trafficking them, selling them. John Newton would have had these images burned on his psyche. He would have had images of this brutal trade in his memory. Humans being forcefully and brutally shackled in chains, beaten into submission, shipped in squalid conditions, where they actually calculated that a number of them would not survive the trip. Oh well, there's another one dead, let's throw him overboard. And then on the other end of that trip, on these shores, those men and women stood in markets and were sold into a lifelong of harsh labor. John Newton had his images seared into his memory. He could never erase them. <laughs> Newton knew that he could be forgiven. He knew that God could cleanse his life. He knew that a wretch like him could experience the amazing grace of God. Almost 100 years later, after Newton wrote Amazing Grace, Horatio Spafford wrote a wonderful hymn called It Is Well With My Soul. If Newton was alive, I'm sure he would have sung this verse with enthusiasm, enthusiasm and gusto. Horatio Spafford wrote, My sin, oh the bliss of this glorious thought, my sin, not in part but in whole, is nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, oh my soul. Do you still bear your sin? 
Are there still memories seared into your mind that the devil uses to trip you up and cause you pain that you still feel guilty over? Some might argue it's not fair, it's not right. How does a slave trader get set off the hook? Escape. Well, there's just one word. Grace. Simply put, grace is undeserved favor. Grace is God gives to us what we do not deserve. John Newton certainly didn't deserve to be forgiven. You and I certainly did not deserve to be forgiven. Noah Webster in his 1828 dictionary says, grace is the free unmerited love and favor of God. By the way, can I just take a little side note here? If you ever want to see great examples of revisionist history, compare Noah Webster's 1828 to the modern-day Webster Dictionary, <laughs> because Noah Webster reflected on God all the time in his definitions. Those are gone today. Those are gone. If you're a homeschooling family, I encourage you to use Noah Webster's 1828. It's a great dictionary. He says, grace is a free, unmerited love and favor of God. So in these next three messages, we are going to study Acts 8, 9, and 10 through this lens of grace. And I've called this series simply Acts of Grace. This morning, we will look at grace received, and we will look at the conversion of an Ethiopian eunuch and a radical rabbi. Next week, we will look at grace practiced. We will look at the conversion of a religious Roman and how the church responded to his conversion. You and I joyfully speak and sing about grace. Maybe we don't understand it as fully as what we should. And I argue, and we will touch more on this next week, we practice it very poorly at times. And then the third message in the series I'm calling Grace Poured Out, and we will focus on the ministry of the Holy Spirit. So one more thought on grace before we get into Acts chapter 8. Providential grace. This is somewhat of a technical way of explaining one of the aspects of grace. And I'm going to point out God's providential grace throughout the series. God's providential grace is the grace that goes before to set things up. To cause you to be here this morning. <laughs> Some of you thought you were just doing your friend a favor or just to keep your spouse happy. You came to church, no. I don't believe that for a moment. God's providential grace causes you and I to cross paths with people, to be ministered to or to minister to. Throughout the series, we will look at and see examples of God's providential grace. All right, Acts chapter seven. About five, and eight, about, about five to eight years into the birth of the church, it's still very localized in Jerusalem, but that will soon change. In Acts chapter 7, the uh, servant Stephen is stoned to death. 
Not because he did anything wrong, but because he was a follower of Jesus Christ. We see that in Acts chapter 7. And then the first verse in Acts chapter 8, verse 1, reads, And Saul approved of their killing him. Talking about Stephen. Stephen was put on this mock trial, this sham of a trial, dragged outside and stoned to death. And there in the crowd was a young zealot by the name of Saul. The Bible tells us he looked on this stone in this execution, approving of it. The Bible tells us that those who stoned Stephen actually took off their cloaks and laid them at Stephen at Saul's feet as an act of respect. Alexander McLaren, one of my favorite Bible commentators, says, The appetite for blood roused by Stephen's martyrdom at once sought for further victims. Let's read on in Acts chapter 8, verse 1. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the region of Judea and Samaria. Saul was ravaging the church, and entering house after house, he dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. So who is the Saul? Well, he's Jewish, but he has Roman citizenship. He was born in Tarsus, which is on the southern coast of modern-day Turkey. Scholars think his family moved to Jerusalem when he was young. At a young age, he entered rabbinical studies under a brilliant scholar by the name of Gamaliel. And you had to be at least 30 to join the Sanhedrin. Scholars think shortly after Saul turned 30, he was invited to join the Sanhedrin. It's highly likely that he was in the room when Stephen went through his, what some people call a trial, his interrogation. And so with Saul persecuting the church, and as the scripture says, ravaging the church, many Christians scatter. They leave Jerusalem. But this is how God works. His, his providential grace is at work, and wherever the Christians go, they preach. They lead people to the Lord. They start churches. This morning, we're going to look at two of those conversions, and we'll see God's amazing providential grace. The first conversion that we will, we, we will look at is the Ethiopian eunuch. And I want to introduce you to a guy called Philip. He's not the apostle Philip. He is the servant Philip. Philip was elected along with Stephen and five others to serve the Greek widows. You read that in the earlier chapters of the book of Acts. We don't know why Philip left Jerusalem, but he did. Maybe he did because of the persecution. Maybe God told him, look, I want you to go north to Samaria. So Philip did, and he went north, not too far away, maybe a couple of days' journey in those days. And he preached to the Samaritans. Samaritans weren't really Gentiles, but they weren't Jews. Kind of this, this strange group caught in between. And many of them came to know the Lord. And then God told Philip, Philip, I want you to go to the road that leads to Gaza. So if you just picture... The map of Israel, you got Jerusalem, and then Galilee, in between Jerusalem and Galilee was Samaria. Philip went to Samaria, preached there for a, for a time, and then God said, okay, now I want you to go south, south of Jerusalem. There's a road from Jerusalem to Gaza, and I want you to go on that road. I'm going to give you an assignment. Gaza, that, that road from Jerusalem to Gaza was a well-traveled trade route. People would go from Jerusalem to Gaza, Egypt, 
and then the rest of Africa. So Philip does. He obeys the Lord, and he goes, goes on this road, and uh, he's walking along the road, or maybe he's riding a horse. We don't know. And, and God says, you see that chariot? Go walk next to that chariot. So Philip does. I want you to see the providential grace of God at work. God's got his hand on someone in that chariot, and God's got his hand on Philip, and he's bringing them together. And Philip walks next to the chariot, and he hears someone in the chariot reading, and Philip recognizes this guy's reading from the Bible. And he's reading it out of the Greek, what, uh, what was called the Greek Septuagint. Uh, because so many Hebrews were scattered around the Middle East and so many of them had lost the Hebrew language, uh, Jews, Jewish scholars decided to translate the Hebrew Bible into Greek about a hundred years before Christ. And this was called the Septuagint. And this Ethiopian in the chariot is reading from the Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible. Philip recognizes it immediately. So we pick up the story. Uh, actually, I'm not going to go to the story yet. The person reading the scripture, as I've already said, is an Ethiopian. The Bible tells us he's an Ethiopian eunuch. Uh, he's, he's Ethiopian. Um, just some history. Noah's had, Noah had three sons. Uh, his one son um, had four sons, and his name was Cush. Cush, when... Noah's descendants spread. Cush went into North Africa and became the father of the Ethiopian. So there's some ancestral heritage between the Ethiopian in the chariot and, in fact, the Hebrew nation. He's a eunuch. A eunuch is a man who has gone through some physical procedure and he's now in service to the king or queen. Well, this Ethiopian eunuch is in service to the queen. We don't know the circumstances. I doubt if this young man, growing up, somebody said to him, so Johnny, what do you want to do to do one day? I want to be a eunuch. <laughs> I don't think that was high up on his list of, of goals. Was he forced into it? Did he get sold by his family into it? Did he voluntarily do it? in service to his king or queen, we don't know. The Bible tells us that he was in service to Candace, the queen of Ethiopia. The, the term Candace could be a queen's name or more likely it's just a title, just like Caesar or Pharaoh. Candace could have been title of a queen. We do know in history that there were regions in that area that were ruled by a long line of female monarchs. So this is the man riding in the chariot. He's in service to Candace the queen. He's been in Jerusalem for some reason to worship in business. He's traveling back reading from the Greek Old Testament. He's reading Isaiah 53. In fact, he's reading through the book of Isaiah. He gets to chapter 53 and he pauses, he's perplexed, and he asks himself, who is this person that the writer is talking about? Who is this suffering servant? All right, now we'll pick it up. Acts chapter 8, 
Verse 29. And the the Spirit said to Philip, Go over and join this chariot. So Philip ran to him and heard him read in Isaiah the prophet and asked, Do you understand what you are reading? And he said, How can I, unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Now the passage of the scripture that he was reading was this. All right, I'm going to pause there. The providential grace of God at work. Is that the time already? There is a professor at Dallas Theological Seminary who is a Messianic Jew. A Messianic Jew is somebody who was raised in a Jewish home who has given their heart to Jesus, recognizing Jesus is the Messiah. We have a few Messianic Jews in this church. And this professor has a fascinating story. He, he was in college uh, as a Jewish young man, and he had a friend who was a Christian. God's providential grace was bringing these men together. And this Christian looked for ways to, to witness to his Jewish friend. And the Jewish friend resisted him. I don't want to go to church. I don't want to listen. And the friend took his Bible and wrote out Isaiah 53 on a piece of paper. And at the bottom he said, this comes out from your Bible, Isaiah 53. And folded up and gave it to him and, and said to him, please read this. Later on that day, this Jewish young man read... And as he was reading, he's thinking to himself, this sounds like the Jesus, the Christian Jesus. And he gets to the bottom and his friend had written, this is in your Bible, Isaiah 53. And he couldn't believe it. He went and got his Bible and he flipped it open, Isaiah 53, and he read word for word what his friend had written down. He was amazed. Isaiah wrote 800 years before Jesus. How come he got it so right? He went to see his rabbi. He took his Bible with him. And he went to see his rabbi and he opened his Bible to Isaiah 53. And he says, Rabbi, Isaiah 53, who is this talking about? The rabbi said, yes, I know. It sounds very much like the Christian Jesus, isn't it? But we're Jews, so we don't believe that. And he brushed it aside. The young man That wasn't enough for him. The young man was inquiring and curious, so he dug some digging, and eventually he gave his heart to Jesus. And this story was told once in a a meeting, and, and, and a young lady in the meeting, a young Christian, raised her hand and said, I was raised in a Jewish home, and in my synagogue we always skipped Isaiah 53. And so I went digging, and I found an article called Isaiah 53, The Forbidden Chapter. I encourage you to read it. It is is written by Messianic Jews, and and it is a study of Isaiah 53. Isaiah 53, look it up, The Forbidden Chapter. I'm going to read to you the opening paragraph from that article. The 17th century Jewish historian Raphael Levy admitted that long ago the rabbis used to read Isaiah 53 in synagogues. But after the chapter caused arguments and greater confusion, the rabbis decided that the simplest thing would be to just take that prophecy out of the haftarah. In synagogue services, they would read from the Torah, and they would read from the Haftarah, which was the prophets, the law and the prophets. 
readings in synagogue. That's why today, when we read Isaiah 52, we stop in the middle of the chapter and the week after we jump to Isaiah 54. Isn't that fascinating? This is the passage the Ethiopian is reading. Do you think that's coincidence? That Philip knew what this passage was talking about? And Philip just happened to walk down the road and listen to an Ethiopian reading from Isaiah 53? Back to Acts chapter 8, verse 32. Now the passage of the scripture that he was reading was this. Like a sheep he was led to the slaughter, like a lamb before its shearer is silent. I want to read to you the rest. Actually, the five verses preceding that verse. Luke just quotes verse 7. But I want to read to you verses 2 through 6 from Isaiah 53. And, this is, and these are the verses that that Ethiopian would have just read before Philip walked next to his chariot. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. How can anyone honestly seeking truth just brush that aside? Verse 34, And the eunuch said to Philip, About whom, I ask you, does the prophet say this? About himself or about someone else? Then Philip opened his mouth and beginning with his scriptures, he told him the good news about Jesus. The Ethiopian gives his heart to the Lord and shortly after they stop, they see a pool or a little river or a pond and Philip and the Ethiopian go in there and the Ethiopian gets baptized. Isn't that a cool story? God's providential grace at work. God setting things up, bringing people together so that he might speak to them, change their lives. Do you think you're here by chance today? (laughs) Let's look at the next one, the radical rabbi. Acts chapter 9. Let me ask you this first. This This is a little trivia, okay? There are 66 books in the Bible. Grace is a very strong topic in the Bible. How many times is the word grace used in the English Standard Version of the Bible? Just just think of a number. How many times would the word grace be used? Well, it's 128 times in the entire Bible, okay? How many times would the Apostle Paul use the word grace? If 128 times the entire Bible, how many times would it have been written by Paul? The number is, you can show that next slide, 82 times. 65% of the times the word grace is used in the Bible, Paul writes it. Why is that? (laughs) 
Could it be that Paul was shown God's amazing grace? Let's look at the Apostle Paul. As I've shared with you, he, he was born in Tarsus. He grew up in Jerusalem. He studied under the great scholar Gamaliel. He was appointed to the Sanhedrin. He was almost certainly at the trial of Stephen. And he went on this murderous rampage against the Christian church. His name was Saul before his conversion. Acts chapter 9 verse 1. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. The early Christian movement was known by a few things. One of them was the way. Saul loathed the way. He publicly declared his disdain for the way. Verse 3. Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. We don't know the exact nature of what happened. Some, some scholars say it was a lightning storm. Others think, well, God just met Saul on the road. We know that he saw Jesus. It blinded him. He was blind for three days. For three days he didn't eat or drink. There's some interesting contrasts from leading an entourage of bloodthirsty fanatics to Damascus to having to be led into Damascus by hand. From expecting to make a grand entrance into Damascus and quickly round up Christians and drag them off to Jerusalem in chains, Saul enters the city humbled and defenseless. From having authority from the highest religious leader in the land to persecute God-fearers, Saul encounters God on that road. From hatred in his heart for Christians to spending three days in total blindness, wondering what was going on. From Saul, the radical rabbi, persecutor of the way, to Paul, the apostle, the follower of Jesus, the way. The story transitions from Saul to a man called Ananias. He's a Christian living in Damascus. I'm sure some of the Christians in that city fled knowing Saul was coming. And God visits Ananias and said, Ananias, I want you to go to Saul. He's on Straight Street. Go and visit him. Go see him. Ananias resists. Lord, no, he's a persecutor. He's come here to arrest us. God says, Ananias, I have met with Saul. I have called him to bear my word to the Gentiles. Go and see him. So Ananias does that. Look at verse 15. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. We see God's providential grace at work. God's got one hand on Saul, one hand on Ananias, and he's bringing them together. Verse 17. Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus has appeared to you on the road by which you came, has sent me so that you may regain your sight 
and be filled with the Holy Spirit. That's Ananias talking to Saul. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized and taking food, he was strengthened. For some days he was with the disciples at Damascus and immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue saying, he is the son of God. Verse 22, Saul confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. True to form, the religious leaders quickly turn on Paul, who's now the apostle. The hunter becomes the hunted. The persecutor becomes the persecuted. Saul escapes Damascus, goes to Jerusalem, then Caesarea goes up to Tarsus and spends some time there before he starts his ministry. What is it? What is it that raised the fury of Saul and the religious leaders? What is it that raised the fury of Romans for the next 300 years? It's because Christians believed in the way. Christians believed that this was the only way, that Jesus was the only way. And they wouldn't back down. In today's world, it's politically incorrect for us to say that Jesus is the only way. And unfortunately, a lot of Christians fudge on this. And they'll capitulate and they'll say, well, Jesus is one of many ways. No, we cannot say that as Christians. We cannot just brush aside what Jesus says, that he is the only way. We cannot do that. And Christians wouldn't do it. Paul knew this. Paul knew about Isaiah 53. He knew that the Christians claimed that Jesus rose from the dead. He knew that the religious leaders could not produce a dead body of Jesus. And he wanted to rid his land of Christians until Jesus met him and changed his life. Saul, the wretched persecutor, becomes Paul, the Jesus follower. So what do we do with this? Let's, let's wrap this up. The Ethiopian, being a good religious man wasn't enough. You need to get that. Paul and his great intellect, that wasn't enough. The religious Jews and Gentiles were told over and over and over again, your acts of righteousness and your religious rituals are not enough. They're not going to solve the problem of sin. There's only one way, and that is through Christ, the Messiah. The Ethiopian asked a good question, Acts chapter 8, verse 34, about whom does the prophet say this? We have to ask that question. If you're not sure about who Jesus is, if you've just brushed it aside, if you haven't been willing to do the tough mental work where you analyze who Jesus is, you have to. Paul, in chapter 9, verse 5, asks, Who are you, Lord? Who are you? And some manuscripts in chapter 9, verse 6, have Paul asking this question, what will you have me do? What will you have me do? I don't know where you are this morning. I don't know how much of God's grace you've experienced. Maybe you haven't experienced any of it. And you're one of those who maybe brushed aside these tough questions. You've refused to go down that road because for whatever reason, you don't believe it, you don't accept it, too much difficulty about creation and science or, 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 or the virgin birth and Jesus rising from the dead. But if you're a seeker of truth, 
you have to ask the question, who is Jesus? Who was the prophet writing about 800 years before Jesus? And then you must ask the question, what must I do with that knowledge? What must I do with that knowledge? Andy, Andy Stanley, one of my favorite preachers to watch and listen, asked this question, when did grace become amazing to you? Isn't that a great question? When did grace become amazing to you? I want to close with a story that we all know very, very well about a lady who experienced the amazing grace of God. We don't know all the backstory. It's recorded in John chapter 8. Religious leaders dragged her before Jesus one day, threw her down on the ground, and said, this woman was caught in adultery. We're telling him, kill her. But what they were actually doing was trying to trap Jesus. Because if Jesus said, well, let's condemn her because the scripture says so in the Old Testament, she's caught in adultery, she deserves to be stoned. Then he goes against his teachings on love and grace and mercy. But on the other hand, if he just lets her go, then he goes against the scriptures and the religious leaders think they've got Jesus trapped. Jesus writes on the sand. We don't know what he writes. And then he says to those who are thirsting for blood, who are trying to trap Jesus in some tough theology, he says to them, go ahead. If you've never sinned, throw the first stone. We'll unpack this topic, this idea more next week. And one by one, they hear the stud where those religious zealots drop their rocks. And Jesus turns to this woman. And maybe God has turned to you in a similar way one day. And if he hasn't, if you've never experienced God's grace, I want you to hear this. And Jesus turns to this woman and says, Woman, I do not condemn you. Go and sin no more. What we have there is a merging of mercy and truth. Truth, you're a sinner. Mercy, I'm going to take the place. And together we see the grace of Jesus. That woman that day experienced God's amazing grace. Have you? Have you experienced God's amazing grace? Maybe there's an area of your life that you know is just lacking God's grace. Maybe an area that you still struggle over and you need God's grace. You need God's mercy. Maybe you're here this morning and you never really have. Maybe you're just going through religious motions and you just have never fully experienced God's grace. I invite you this morning. Ask the Lord to pour his grace on you. But don't, don't avoid doing the tough mental stuff. Don't resist God taking you down paths that might be painful. Don't resist God taking you into areas 
of your dark past that he wants to redeem and restore. Don't shut out the memory of that person that you hurt or who hurt you. God wants to shower that with his grace. Will you let him? Let's pray. In your own way, quietly, invite the grace of God into your life. Receive it, just like the Ethiopian did, just like the persecutor Paul did. Ask God to pour his grace into your life. If there's areas of your life that needs cleansing and forgiveness, you need to present that to God. Ask him for forgiveness and cleansing. Father, we invite your grace this morning. We want you to cleanse us, to fill us. We want to be people of grace, but we recognize that we must first be filled with your grace. We want our lives to be changed. And Father, we make a commitment to you this morning that we will not avoid those tough mental, mental tasks. We will go down any road you, you, you call us down. We will wrestle with any thought. We will unturn every stone. We will allow you to delve into any dark recess of our lives so that we can experience the full grace of God. as the worship team leads us in this amazing, amazing song. We invite you to respond to the Lord. There's prayer partners on your left at the altar, or you can come to the altar on your right. We invite you to respond as the Lord leads you. Let's stand and worship the Lord. Amazing grace how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. Was blind, but now I see. Twas grace that taught my heart to fear and grace my fears relieved how precious did that grace appear the hour I first believed my chains are God, my Savior, has ransomed me, and like a flood, His mercy reigns, unending love, amazing grace. The Lord.
Will be forever. 